all you reinventors. This is Leslie Jane Seymour, and I am the founder of this podcast and of CoveyClub.com, where we talk about reinvention all day, all night, and into the wee hours of, <laughs> of, of, of the morning and the evening. And I hope that if you are serious about reinvention, you will realize that doing it all alone is not a good way to go. Come join us. We actually have a club where you can be with other women just like you who are in the process of reinventing and you can be held up by them and you can be counseled by them. You can be held accountable by them to make sure that you are moving forward. Anyway, today I want to tell you about Rebecca Weber. She's a journalist and writing coach who has covered social justice, the environment, the arts, and travel for CNN, the New York Times, Dwell, and other publications. And she hosts a podcast called Writing Coach. And we're talking about how you can trans transfer or change out of whatever you're doing, banking, law, whatever it is that you've done in the past or currently are doing and move into the writing area, she has figured out, unlike a lot of us former magazine people, um, how to make a, a decent living by balancing different pieces. You're not going to be rich, but if this is something that you want to do at this point in your life, there is a way to balance the pieces you love to do, which are going to pay less with the pieces that um, you don't want to do, but that will pay more. Um, and then other things that will actually bring in an income and support you. So this is Rebecca Weber. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to speak with you. So let's talk about your personal reinvention. Um, where did you grow up and how did you get started? Yeah, I grew up in Boston, Massachusetts, and I was sort of one of those typical book nerd kind of kids, did a degree in English and thought I was going to be a, a teacher, a classroom teacher. And I I taught for a while and decided to take like a semester off. I was teaching uh, undergrads. I was teaching writing to undergrads in the Washington, D.C. area. I took a semester off to see if I liked editing. And although the job that I was at was okay, we worked with freelance writers. And I said, I think I actually really, really, really want to be doing what they're doing. And although I knew all these people who worked at the magazine, they didn't see me as a writer. They didn't see that oh, I had yes. that potential. Yeah. And yeah, you know, everyone always says it's all about who you know, but they knew me. <laughs> they, they knew that they weren't going to give me a shot. So I started pitching story ideas on the side to people who didn't have any sort of preconceived ideas about who I was or what I could do and sort of took off from there. For, at, at a certain point, I felt like I've got enough work going on on the side to actually go freelance full time. And so I did that. That was uh, back in, I think, 2004 that I went freelance full-time and I was living in DC at the time. And then a few years later, I moved back to Cape Town, South Africa, where I had lived for a year right after college. Uh, and I moved here right before the recession, the great recession at the very oh end my. of 2007. Oh my. Um, and so although, you know, there was the internet and all that kind of thing, I, I thought I'd be able to continue with my work. I 
quickly lost some clients and at that point really had to pivot to sort of trying to up level the kind of clients I've been working with because just sort of pitching to the sort of lower paying publications wasn't working. That seemed to be the strategy everybody was trying to adapt. Right. And instead I said, let me really actually raise my game here. And that's what I did. And then in the last few years, I've also been coaching writers and helping them do sort of make sort of similar, not always the same choices, but also helping them sort of figure out who their dream publications are, who they most want to be writing for. And for me, that gives me a lot of satisfaction because I'm able to take the things that I had to sort of figure out for myself along the way and share them with them. And it also sort of comes full circle with the education piece that I had started out with. That would have been my original idea was that I was going to teach high school students. And now that I mean, it's a slightly different situation, but it feels like those skills have really come back to play into play for me now so why South Africa I would love to hear what your connection to South Africa is you know it was just that fascination with watching the first democratic elections I was in my senior year of college while Mandela was elected and sort of had missed the Berlin Wall coming down I was just like that seems like the most interesting place to go and came with a one-year program to teach English in a rural farm school, got super connected and sort of hooked in. And it was really just the idea was to come for a year and see what was going on. And I sort of just couldn't keep away from it. I did go back to the States for a while because I said I you know, did my master's there, worked in DC for a while, but I, I found myself coming back here. There's just so, so much, so many interesting things happening in a country that is just such a young democracy still. And it's endlessly fascinating. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about being a writer today, because you're very optimistic about that. And I came out of the publishing business and basically left because the, mm -hmm. the structure had changed so much. How do you make a living today as a writer? Can you? And for the people who are listening who would like to be a writer, can you really support yourself anymore as a writer? I mean, in my day, you could. It was it was a very um, lucrative business, but with the advent of really the Huffington Post, it was the Huffington Post that broke everything, I believe, though people tell me somebody would have done it, which was, oh, you're going to write for free for advertising purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, I everybody think followed suit. Yeah, I mean, the, the living thing, I think, really makes a... Uh... It's an interesting question, right? Because what is the living anyway? I mean, I live in Cape oh. Town. It's a lot less expensive here than it is in DC, right? So okay. that's, you know, for me, that's a sort of a starting point that it is easier in that way. And for myself and for most other freelancers that I know that there's usually some kind of mix. I mean, I do know people who make 100% of their living through freelance journalism. That's never been my only thing. I've always done either some editing, some content marketing, some teaching, some coaching. There's always been something else that I've done in addition to the straight journalism. And I I still feel like I'm able to do the work that I most want to do and sort of have these sort of different, use these different skills in different kind of ways, sort of similar ability to tell stories, to do interviews, to speak with people and and also be able to do some things that are more lucrative. I mean, I agree with you, you know, sort of writing for tr those traditional publications is not lucrative, but again, I think different people make it work in different kind of ways. 
So talk a little bit about who you write for and what you write, because that's a really interesting strategy. I think it's a really yeah. interesting, viable strategy, especially for women who are thinking of reinventing themselves. And they may have had a career in law or banking, or you know they have an expertise already that they could maybe leverage into the more lucrative part of writing. But but what are those? What are those? What are the buckets where you should look for lucrative, <laughs> and and where are <laughs> the buckets you should look for reward, personal reward? Yeah, well, I mean, I think that depends on on everyone in terms of what is most satisfying and most rewarding. I mean, it's it's fine if the lucrative is in and of itself most satisfying. I mean, there's a lot of satisfaction in being financially independent and you know earning and earning a good a good income. For myself, I chose to go with the things that were most interesting to me. And initially, as I said, when I moved from DC to Cape Town, I struggled a bit initially to write about what was going on in South Africa for a U.S. audience. There's not huge interest. I mean, there's some interest from U.S.-based publications about what's happening in South Africa, but not that much. It, it tends to hover around big events like the end of apartheid or the World Cup or something like that. And so I had to sort of figure that out. How can I talk about stories that are happening here, things that are happening here? And for me, I, I figured out that for the most part, it meant not trying to compete with the wires, not trying to compete with the foreign correspondents that were, you know, sort of staff correspondents, but rather to go into the subject areas that were also of interest to me, like social justice, like the environment, arts, travel. For me, those were topics that were super interesting. And also if they were positioned as I'm here, you know, you don't have to send somebody here. I have the ability to get to the places and talk to people on the ground. And I know the sources, all those kind of things. That was very appealing. And I think that over time that has become actually, it's, it's certainly not just my strategy. I think it's been a shift in terms of the way that newsrooms do seem to tend to value local reporters more so than they did in the past, partly because of economics, but also because they recognize that somebody who's local does have a better understanding of what's going on than somebody that they send in from their team for a few days. Yeah, I think that's the, that's a big learning. I think both financially, you're right, rather than sending a whole crew over there to do something and then getting it wrong. I mean, one of the things that we, I now live in New Orleans and one of the things that we get frustrated by our people from the outside coming in and saying, what's, you know, what's, what's so bad about what's going on here? You know, and this is, this looks like this to them on the outside and they're not getting the whole story. And so they get it wrong and they publish these things in national papers that are completely, they're completely wrong. <laughs> it's not <Yeah>. what's happening. <laughs> that's, that's a very interesting thing. So talk a little bit about what kind of give us an idea of your buckets. What, what do you, what do you write, you know, for pleasure? What do you write, um, for, uh, for financial support, what coaching you do? Like, I just want to understand the mix a little bit so people can get a feeling. Yeah. So the, the sort of more straightforward journalism pieces are in those subject areas. I mentioned the social justice, the arts travel, there's, there does seem to be an, an appeal in being able to appeal to say the environmental editor as opposed to the South Africa desk editor, which like I said, like those straight, straight news breaking stories are sort of limited. Um, the exception would be when 
Nelson Mandela died, when Oscar Pistorius shot his girlfriend. Like there are certain kinds of big news breaking stories that that are appealing. But for the most part, and I have done those, I did work on those stories. But for the most part, it's sort of going into to my own interest areas. And that is sort of largely what have encouraged the other people that I coach, the writers that I work with, to also figure out what is actually most appealing to you. I think there's there often for professional writers this there's this encouragement for say copywriters and content marketers to specialize, to have a niche. And I don't think that that's bad advice necessarily, but I also think it often comes at it from the wrong angle. I think it's more likely if you do a few stories and we sort of look back at the last 10 pieces, there's always going to be a niche that emerges, whether that's writing about human rights or women's interests or, you know, women artists, there's, there's always that sort of trend that emerges. And then we say, let's look into those kind of stories and see how we can position them or shape them in such a way so that they are more appealing to a wide variety of readers than you might otherwise be thinking about. A lot of people have, you know, those eye, their eyes on those, the really big name publications. And that's great to be able to write for them, but they are not actually always the most lucrative as, as I'm sure, you know, you know, um, writing for those, you know, it's great to have it in your, in your, in your Twitter bio, but it doesn't necessarily pay the bills, especially if it's a digital only story, those tend to pay a lot less than, than print, even after all these years. Right. And then what about the kind of coaching things? And in in the old days, in the olden days, back in the day, mm-hmm. um, you used to not be able to mix those two. You were either a straight journalist yeah. or you did copywriting and all this other stuff and the two did not meet. What's the thinking now? Is it um, is it like whatever floats your boat, whatever works for you? Um, how does that work? I think that the there's a, a much greater forgiveness of this. I think there are a lot of people that still have that mindset that like maybe these are supposed to be kept completely independent. But the reality is that virtually everybody who I know who's does some freelance journalism also does, if they're working full time, also does some other kind of either content marketing marketing or copywriting. I think the general rule of thumb is try to not have those be the same niche for both. Uh-huh. So, keep the, you know, keep the subject matter different so they don't, they don't uh, yeah. poison each other in any way. Exactly. Like I was doing a reported travel story. It was sort of about the business of travel and that was the kind of thing that, you know, they sort of offered, would you like to come and stay at our hotel? I was talking to one of the people who worked for the hotel group and, you know, it, it obviously was sort of a reflex on their part. You know, I don't know that they were imagining that I was an influencer or what, but it was, it was a, it was an easy and a hard no for me to say no to that. That's not the kind of, you know, the, the, I did not want to cross that line. I wouldn't take the free offer, but also it just seemed to me like, let's let's keep these these areas very very clearly distinct from one another does anybody require that or that's just your um way of handling it well i think there is still an issue about conflict of interest and conflict of interest can be real or perceived conflict of interest and i think that it's very hard if you're a specialist in a subject area that you're covering you know, if you're covering the same companies as a journalist, but they're also, you you can't also then write for those companies or accept their products or any of those kind of things. It seems like you need to to keep it separate. 
I, I, there are a handful of publications that have asked me to clarify that I haven't done that. It's not the norm that they actually ask or a couple of times that I've been asked. And I think that most people, most people that I know do are aware of trying to keep those, those things separate and clean. But so I also suspect that some people don't. <laughs> I'm yeah, sure it goes yeah, yeah. both ways. Yeah. Well, you know, when I look back at what we did as editors, I mean, it wasn't, it was clean, but it wasn't clean. You know, people would mm -hmm. send us all their beauty products to try because you couldn't afford them, mm -hmm. but we had to try them in order to talk about them. So, you know, it makes sense. We didn't, we didn't write about everything we got. We only wrote about the stuff that we liked that we thought was worth mentioning. Yeah. So yeah. it's a, it's a weird it's definitely weird, but it is um, definitely weird. <laughs> and how do you make those as a freelancer? How do you make those trade-offs? Because again, how do you, you can't afford to take all the trips before you write about mm -hmm. them. There's no possibility. And yet the consumer wants you to be mm -hmm. the authority on it. Right. Well, so, personally, yeah, personally for me with travel, and I don't think this is obvious to people unless they were really to do a deep dive into every story I've written, which I can't imagine anybody right. ever ha actually has done. I don't actually right. write about trips. Like I don't, act I've never taken a press trip and oh. I never actually pitched them. So for example, I can write in great depth about the city that I live in or the city that my parents live in because there's no, there's no budget involved. Right. And I'm right. actually still able to pitch that those stories better than somebody who would be flying in because I already know what the things are I know what the new things are I know what the trends are right. and it's not a problem and then also I might do a business story or you know do something do something else that can be positioned as here's a food story here's you know here's some kind of other trend that's going on that makes it a little bit less obvious and I should also say is that at least in the <laughs> this is this is sort of a generalization, but for the most part, editors in the U.S. assume that I can report about anything in Africa, even if I've never been there. I can get on the phone just as easily as they can. And so there is a lot of that remote reporting that happens now, maybe more so than in the past when there were bigger budgets. Um, I don't mean to say this as a, you know, like I, I think that travel is a particularly fraught area. And I know a lot of people yeah. who I consider to be ethical writers who do right. take press trips. Right. And I think they just need to be very clear about what they're offering. And some publications do disclose, I think it's not obvious to readers in most cases, who is really footing the bill. I don't think that it's possible to be completely impartial when the places offering you services knows that you're there and you're writing a, a piece about them. That seems really hard to be able to do it that way. And yet, how can you write about it if you haven't done it? You know, it's yeah. a, it's a, it's a definite thing. Talk about things like, I see that you do coaching as well. Mm -hmm. You yeah. coach writers. So again, what is your mix? You do, is it like 30% your own satisfaction pieces? 30% I'm making this up, you know, mm -hmm. like what are your percentages? And then you have coaching is 32% or like, but how does your life mm -hmm. work out that it, that it's balanced and that you can live off of it. Yeah. At the moment, I, I don't know the balance is the word I would use. Okay. I've got a, um, a small child right now. And so everything uh -huh. is like sort of out of balance. We also okay. had a really hard, we had a really hard lockdown uh, in South Africa. It was like, don't leave your house unless oh. you are going to buy food or medical supplies and 
if you see your neighbor doing what you think is exercise, report them at this number. I mean, it was, it oh was, it was pretty intense. When did so, that end? Is it still going? Uh, no, 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 everything is, everything is done now at this point, but it, it really did take its toll. And, um, I got, I, I became sort of, as we were phasing that out, um, we sort of went through a ser- series of stages. I got pregnant. I had COVID while I was pregnant, it, oh my you know, God. when I was delivering the baby, um, there was a, another surge. And so there were limited visitors in the hospital. Like it was, it was oh a really weird time. And then following that, the advice from everyone was like, well, don't allow your baby to be anywhere near anybody who could be contagious because there was such a first there was such a there was a long time before vaccinations came. And then there is still very low uh, percentage of adults who are vaccinated. So we sort of remained sort of like for at first it was enforced and then it was personally enforced of just sort of following the pediatricians. So this is a long way of saying I put a hold on any kind of in-person reporting, right? Like okay. that, which is one of the things I had loved so much is being able to go on site and and right. talk to people. So right now, most of what I'm doing is either the coaching, and I do this all actually remotely. It's all on Zoom, and I'm also working on a book proposal, which is and that is its own whole thing, and working on the sample chapters. That is largely those are like the two main buckets of what I'm doing right now. I also do some non-bylined work. So right now the journalism is sort of in the background, but all the work that I'm doing is really informed by the journalism. And I do expect as my child gets a little bit older and things, you know, sort of shift a little bit, that I'll go back more into that that kind of work that I enjoyed. Right. So much. It's really more a lifestyle thing than a finances thing right. at at this point in time. Um, the coaching itself, I I work with people all over. This is like been one of the phenomenal things for me about. I always, you know, sort of worked remotely, but but not as remotely as right. it is right now. Right. And many of the people that I work with are either freelance writers. Sometimes they're journalists. Sometimes they're making a career switch. You know, they may have had some other kind of writing experience in in the past. So many people who are entrepreneurs or managers, you know, they do some professional writing, some writing as part of their job, but it's not their professional identity. And so I work with them very often in terms of the skill of pitching, like that whole process of learning how to identify the market, writing story ideas for them. And we work on that sort of external skill set of being able to write a good pitch. But we also work a lot on the internal mindset skills. As you know, you know, women get in particular have a lot of sort of uh, expectations of themselves and have very high expectations, want right. things to be perfect, tend to procrastinate, yes. they have imposter syndrome. Yes. And all of these things interfere sometimes in big ways that they sort of stop pitching or they, you know, sort of feel like they've been blown over by the rejection. And sometimes it's just in micro ways that they're just like, well, let me sleep on this one more night or, you know, wow, let me put this off a little bit. And so we work on those two things back and forth to make sure that that they're able to move forward with the external work as well. When I first, first started coaching, I really had the notion that Everybody needed the external and only a few people needed the internal. And then the more and more I've done it, the more I see it. I, I don't know if there's anybody who doesn't need some help with the internal work as well. I think it's just an ongoing process to be able to become more comfortable with the self-doubt, be able to become more comfortable with confidence. Sometimes people are very uncomfortable 
with confidence. Like, what is this yes. thing? <laughs> it right. doesn't feel quite right. right. Um, and so that work has been really, really fascinating, really, uh, really helpful for me. And, and also for me, I feel like it does come back full circle to the education piece where I used to think, you know, I'm here in the classroom and what I teach people will help them in the rest of their career in terms of their writing skills will help them become better communicators. And this is just sort of a, a different iteration of that. It's the same sort of core element, but now I feel like it helps them more directly with their writing and getting their voice out so that they can connect with their readers as well. And let me tell you, putting yourself out there in writing is hard, especially yeah. if you're putting yourself into the piece. I mean, it's hard enough just doing a good piece. And then if you're actually doing essays or you're putting your opinion out there, you're, all, you know, and today with everybody having social media and everybody being a critic, <laughs> yeah, you, you can get hit pretty bad for, you know, a misunderstanding or a misstatement or a missed word or whatever. But so it is much riskier. What do you find about older women? Is there anything that you find that's different about older women? Do they have more confidence, less confidence? Do you find any, any women over 40? Is there any difference? than that's men a, or younger women or anything? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I do work with women of pretty much all ages. I mean, I'm, I'm Gen X and I definitely work with millennials, a lot, like a lot of millennials, Gen X and boomers. And I would say the thing that's probably distinguishes for women who are older is that usually at that point, they're like, this is really what I want to do. And they sort of understand, I, I feel like they're more in tune with, they've, they've made other sacrifices in their life to not do the writing. Mm -hmm. And now they're like, whatever other sacrifices I have to make in order to oh. do the writing, that seems like, that seems like a, a, a good fit for them. Oh, that's so interesting. Do you, do you see that they have more or less barriers? Do they have, because they've made up their mind, do they seem to have fewer barriers? I think that that depends on the individual and sort of like where, where they're coming from. I think that, I think that the perception of themselves is really important at the, from the outset, you know, like, do they see themselves as having something worthwhile and valuable to say? And I think that usually by the time they start to work with me, they recognize, yes, that's true. But then they also have some cognitive dissonance. They're also telling themselves, maybe not yet, maybe not this time. Maybe the rejection is going to be a little bit too harsh to handle. And so we sort of have to work into that, get into that space of becoming comfortable enough with the discomfort to be able to allow them to keep moving forward. It's like, it's, it's going to be painful if they don't do the work right usually right. usually I think that later in life they're like I really got to do this this isn't going to happen in 20 years this is not going to happen you know they, they can't right. defer it necessarily on their generation right right so as we pull to a close here um let's talk a little bit about you know what sort of tips and tricks if there are women listening who are thinking wow I want to do what she does mm -hmm. um what are your like top three tips and tricks you would tell a woman like me, you know, been around mm -hmm. for a while. I'm not a newbie. Yeah. Um, what do I need to do to make it all happen? Yeah. I think that one of the things that is worth reminding professional writers like yourself as well, but especially for people who are new is that the, the first draft of anything 
is just the first draft of the thing that you're working on. I think a lot of times people who are newer to professional writing have an expectation that it should be good and they oh. really want it to be good. And they've had some experience of it being good at some point. And I feel like professional writers are more used to the fact they've just done so many lousy first drafts that they sort of are like, yeah, this is just the part where we have to get through and then we right. can go back and rewrite. Right. Yeah. I always coach people. I don't coach writing, but you know, I coach people who are having a trouble, uh, you know, like my kids or whatever. I just say vomit onto the page, whatever the thing <laughs> is, what just blah, no periods, no punctuation, just get it out. And then, and then yeah. you can look at it from there, but if it's not out on the page, you don't know what you're working with. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, nobody actually wants to read a transcript of what we think, the way we think is like, it was just like a mess. But once right. we have it there, it's very easy to pair it back or say, here's a gap. Let's, let's fill this in. So if, yeah, I think. If it's not there, you can't do anything with it, right? Exactly. Exactly. There's that figuring out what you're going to say, and then there's figuring out how you're going to say it. And there you go. Yeah. Okay. So I think that's the first one. And then I would say for somebody who's interested in in writing for publications and, you know, writing, sort of getting published in that traditional way, I really encourage people to think about the publications first. This is actually sounds like really generic advice because editors always say, I'm sure you always told your writers, you know, read the publication. Oh first. God. Yes. Um, and they did it. And, and they would, send and they didn't, me, they would send me, I was doing Mary Claire and they would send me the, the letter that said, I love reading glamor magazine. Oh my gosh. And you'd be like, Oh man. <laughs> at least know who you're sending it to. Like, don't cut and paste like this ding. Yeah. 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 That's the worst. But I think that that, that cut and paste aspect is really problematic, especially if you're wanting to break into those big name publications. It's not just reading the publication is analyzing. It's figuring out who yeah. are these readers? How does, how does a glamour reader distinguish from a reader at Marie Claire or from the right. times or from the post or wherever it is, it could be the same core story, but it will be presented in a really different way. Mm -hmm. And then once you really understand which section of which publication you're writing for only then start to put together the story idea. I, I don't know if it's necessary for staff writers, but I guess staff writers actually already understand the publication they're writing for. They would never yes. write yes. as if they were writing for the competition. No, no, that that's the whole thing. That's why you have staff writers, if you can afford them, is because they already know the headset and the mindset. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you don't have to yeah. go any further than that. That I'd say that's the hardest thing is really being familiar um, and really spending the time to get familiar. And don't read just five. You need to go back yeah. and read a couple of months of whatever it is you've been you, you're dying to write for. Yeah, and one of one of the follow up hacks that I like for that is that nowadays all the sites have got some kind of newsletter that you could sign up for, and so you'll start seeing in your inbox either every day or every week. Here are the stories that we're promoting, and also here are the stories that have done really well. And that's yeah. that's not a substitute for reading everything else, like, but it sort of keeps it fresh and helps you see where there's editorial changes or pivots or that kind of thing. Or holes. Yes. And holes. What are they okay. missing? That's like one of the favorite things. It's like, you know, if you read a great piece and you're like, but they forgot to do this part, it's not just an internal critique. It's, there's your opening. There's the thing that you could actually develop into a pitch for them. Correct. And um, how do you find how do you find who you should pitch to anymore when there are no, there are no mastheads? We used to have mastheads <laughs> in magazines and you could look at the person who handled travel or the, you know, you'd find out who they were. Yeah. I mean, find out who to pitch to anymore. 
Look, I think that the one thing that's really different now is that there are so many online writer groups that share this information. A lot of these groups, if they're on Facebook or sometimes they're paid professional organizations, they'll have like a Google sheet that everybody will go into and share that info. You know, once you find out the email formula for a publication, you usually can figure out who it is. I sometimes just call the receptionist's job is actually to, you know, confirm, is this the right person? Is this their email? And most people are on Twitter or LinkedIn. Do they you know, there's, there's pitches that way on Twitter or LinkedIn? I, sorry, I wouldn't, thanks for asking that. I wouldn't recommend pitching that way. Occasionally they'll say in Twitter, like, you know, like DM me, but it is a way to figure out who is the person who has that job. And then once you know the name or the title, then you've got like one more piece of the puzzle and you can either confirm with the receptionist, figure out what the email formula is, ask in one of your writer's group, is this the right person? There's a, a number of ways then you can sort of confirm uh -huh. that you've got the right person. So my last question for you, Rebecca, is um, how what what are some of the groups that people could join if they're a newbie that uh, yeah. that would have that information? If somebody is relative newbie, I would recommend that you check out Facebook. There's a lot of groups that are on there. If you start searching for them and putting in sort of the keywords of the kind of groups that you're looking for, there's a lot on LinkedIn as well. There's um, there's Study Hall, which is an interesting group that has that is definitely not just for newbies, but I think it's nice actually to be in a group where you're relatively new and there's a lot of people that can help you along the way as well. There's a lot of actually quite experienced and veteran people in there as well. So what do I Google if I'm looking for groups? Do I just Google writing groups or what do I Google? Um the the sorry the part of the reason i'm hesitating is that one oh. of the big one of one of the big groups that um that's actually on facebook is that one of, they're sort of like fight club one of their rules is that you're not actually supposed to mention the name of them oh for um, goodness <laughs> sake are you kidding me oh my god yeah. Why it's um that? it's they it's just specifically it's um it's specifically for you know writers who are women or socialize as women, and I'm just a little reluctant to say their name oh. on the podcast. Um, and, oh, I'm sorry. I don't that's want to like... get in trouble. Okay, I just didn't understand why you were yeah. telling I do not want you to be excommunicated because of this podcast. I mean, okay. I feel like if anybody wanted to reach out to me, I can add them on Facebook. But um... <laughs> okay, all right. So Rebecca, with that. Pat, um, why don't you tell us where people can reach you and find you and find your services? Yeah, I think probably the best way to connect is um, actually through my podcast. Since we're you're listening here, um, I'm on, I host a show called the Writing Coach Podcast, and you can find it on any of the podcast apps. Whatever you're listening to this in, it'll be there as well. And then at a certain point, if you get to know her really, really well, you can get the secret handshake word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Rebecca. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the, the opportunity. So I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Rebecca. If this was helpful to you, please give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps other people find us and helps them get on the way to their reinvention. If you are serious about your reinvention, 
please come over to coveyclub.com and check us out. Put the word reinvention into the little spyglass in the search area and you will find articles and how to's and videos and everything that we know about reinvention. Of course, we cover the world with um, Women 40 Plus on the site. And we can talk to you there. There's articles there about, you know, everything from menopause to, uh, you know, how to do executive coaching, whatever it is you might need that would be part of your reinvention. We've got the info. It's written at high level. It assumes that you're a smart, intelligent woman who is well on her way to being meaningful in the world, no matter what her age. And I hope that you will join us there. And until next time, this is Leslie Jane Seymour.